to bring you greetings from Peace and a Baptist Brotherhood up in Sunbury. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed being here so far today. Thank you for the devotions, Brother Ben. Uh, I don't know what your expectations were of young men standing up to share, but that was some deep thinking. And it's an important thing to be thinking about today. You know, Jesus warned that as the end draws closer and iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. Saints, we need to be aware of that. We are not free from it. We can be taken down that path real easily. And then, of course, hearing the account again of uh, Jim Elliott and his commitment to spreading what he understood. Obviously, we wouldn't have seen everything eye to eye with Jim, I'm sure, if we sat down at a table and talked for a few hours. But nevertheless, to, to be committed to what he understood of the kingdom of God and carrying it to the heathen, that commitment that meant even life. And then, one step farther, a wife who can choose to love the people that killed her husband. That goes way past compatibility, doesn't it? The depth of commitment that that woman showed is rare and Christ-like. Rare and Stephen-like. You know, sometimes, especially in the evangelical world, we excuse our own lack of spirituality by saying, well, I'm not Jesus. You know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, though, was not Jesus. Stephen prayed specifically, God, don't lay this sin to their charge. In essence, again, Father, forgive them. But they, they don't understand. They're not getting it. They don't comprehend. And I'm convinced that somewhere along the line, Elizabeth Elliot had to come to the place of saying that. God, they didn't understand. They just didn't understand. They didn't understand my husband's intentions. But your kingdom goes way past. Goes way past my commitment even to my husband. And so that is pretty precious. And then that choice of songs. <clears throat> Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was an amazing man. A very amazing man. And um, that song was written in 1723. And I'm not sure where that fits in with his being over in his homeland, Moravia, or being over here in Pennsylvania. But Zinzendorf helped with uh, the work amongst the Lenni Lenape Indians here in Pennsylvania. Um, of course, David Zeisberger would have been the key missionary with them, but uh, Zinzendorf was here and visited as a bishop, uh, leader of the Moravians. They knew a bit about uh, interacting with other cultures. They knew quite a bit about uh, bringing together a whole band of people from different backgrounds and making it into a church movement that, uh, pretty amazing, 
pretty amazing. Again, we wouldn't, if we sat to a table, we wouldn't agree with everything. Uh, they still practiced infant baptism and some other things that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. But for the most part, there's a lot of things we would agree with, with the Moravians. And they held on to a prayer meeting that lasted how long? You know? A hundred year long prayer meeting. That means the different brothers and sisters throughout that Moravian Brotherhood took turns and kept a prayer vigil going that lasted 100 years. Uh, so spiritual movements go. That was pretty astounding. There's not many spiritual movements that have lasted 100 years, much less prayed that long. All right, well, I'm going to set this down here. And we're going to open up the Word of God. <clears throat> And I'm going to ask that you be uh, uh, a little bit lenient with me, allowing me to read to you very familiar scriptures that I know that you know, but I'm going to read them to you from the Amplified today. Um, I'm not promoting any version changes. I love the King James Bible. I don't think it's the only translation. Obviously, most of our forefathers didn't speak English, so there was Christianity before King James was ever born, but... Uh, as far as English versions go, I think it's a pretty good one. So the question, the title of our message, which is a question, is, who needs revival? <clears throat> and um, I'd like you this morning to say amen to the following statements as long as you agree with them. America needs revival. American Christendom needs revival. American evangelicals need revival. It's getting quieter. American Anabaptist churches need revival. Okay, that's a little better. Charity and Agape churches need revival. And we need revival. And so I think that what we have been hearing uh, this morning is actually very reviving. It brings back and brings life to those who already have life, but maybe circumstances, events have occurred that have dimmed the, the light revival. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? You know, there is such a thing as false revivals. I'm a lover of history, enjoy uh, history, and looking back over revival, you can definitely see some of the false revival elements, and one of them is raw emotionalism. Raw emotionalism is not revival. You can be very emotional. Emotional is a function of your soul. You can be very emotional without being revived at all, spiritually. And so that crank it up type of let's get it all wound up uh, for revival is not the real thing. It's not the real thing. Now, we are emotional creatures, so let's not deny that. And, you know, when we are filled with joy, we should be able to express that joy, right? So emotion can be a, a fringe benefit of true revival, but it certainly cannot generate revival. And by stirring emotions, we generally don't accomplish what's needed. A wrong emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit have been false revival to the point where... Many times, counterfeits need to be produced. You know, various gifts have been elevated. Let's say one that got elevated a lot was the gift of speaking in unlearned languages, or we'll say ecstatic utterances, which are not the same thing. Simta pale avec ou en creole, 
Sa pata profite ou rien. If I speak with you today in Creole, it won't profit you anything. Amen. <laughs> so that's not a gift language. The gift was the ability to learn it. <laughs> Many times in my experience in Haiti, I wished that I could just get zapped and somehow I'd speak Creole. It didn't work like that for me. I had to work for every word. <laughs> so it goes. Wrong emphasis on certain either real or perceived gifts is not revival. And when we start to go so far as to teach that, you know what, if you're really saved, you're going to speak in tongues, and that tongues is just gibberish that can be acquired. I had a friend that was raised in a Pentecostal setting, and all their youth knew that until somebody gave a message in tongues, the service would continue. A service just went on and on and on and on and on and on and on until somebody gave a message in tongues, then the service was ended. So these youth conspired together in their youth group and they learned how to do and say certain things a certain way that if they needed the service to be over, up they'd go. Guess who's behind counterfeits and it's not the Holy Spirit? That's demonic. That's demonic. That's living a lie. And so that, that young man knew it, and he was, you know, not trying to boast that, that I was a good thing. But <clears throat> wrong emphasis on spiritual gifts. Emphasis on eternity with no focus on the kingdom now does not produce revival. Yes, again, that emotional thing. You can take five-year-olds and you can explain the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell, and ask a five-year-old, do you want to go to heaven or hell? And yes, they want to go to heaven. <laughs> At least most of them do. Very rarely you find one that says, yes, I want to go to hell. You have to wait till they're about 15 or 18 and been listening to some heavy metal rock music for a while till they'll say that. But in reality, even they don't want to go there. I say Americans are... Notorious for running 90 miles an hour, but wanting to lock up the brakes before they slide into the grave. Revival. An emphasis on eternity with no focus on the kingdom now does not produce it. And so I would say equally there's a problem with not talking about eternity and only talking about the kingdom now. And so there has to be a balance in order to bring about true revival. Um, we'll talk about the race to the bottom. It has been said that where every church in town could all just come together and we just could all hold hands and we can all share communion together regardless of some major, major doctrinal errors. This happened in East Africa. My great-grandfather was in East Africa from 1950 to 53, Reuben Horst. And he served there with Lancaster Conference Church. His brother was a bishop, Amos. Horst was a bishop in Ephrata. And uh, Amos was very mission-minded, very outreach-minded for planting churches here in rural Pennsylvania and the upper counties. But he was also very mission-minded, Somalia and Ethiopia and Tanzania, Kenya. Um, he, he was a man who traveled. Both of his children had died at a young age. So him and his wife had no children. Um, and he was pretty well free to go, and he did. 
That time you went, you went on a boat, it took you six or eight weeks to get there. It was not an easy trip like today. But something occurred in East Africa and Tanzania, northern Tanzania and Kenya, that is, um, how do you want to say it? It was called the East African Revival, but I really question if it was a revival at all. There were Anglicans, there were Lutherans, and there were Mennonites. And they all began to cast off what they were standing for. And they were all going to work together and became united. But things like non-resistance became unimportant. Uh, eventually, divorce and remarriage became unimportant. Lots of things became unimportant. So today, in those areas of Africa, there are people who call themselves Mennonite who are not Anabaptist at all. <laughs> but they've held on to a name. That was not revival. No, revival does not, is not a race to the bottom, the lowest common denominator of what well, we all believe in one God, right? It was not many years ago that the Catholic Pope, John Paul, declared that we have come to the day where we need to embrace the Jew as our older brother and the Muslim as our younger brother against a world filled with polytheism. So, we believe in one God, therefore we're all brothers, right? Is that really true? Are we all light? Are we all enlightened? So, no, true revival does not replace sound doctrine, it extols it. Matter of fact, many times what is revived is sound doctrine. And so we cannot call that revival when it's just, let's all come to the lowest common Thing that we have in common. Agree to disagree on everything, but that there's one God, or agree to, to disagree on, you know, so many things that there is no spiritual life. And then exclusiveness and spiritual pride um, are not revival. We can be, become very exclusive. We can lift up that we have discovered the way, and unless you find the way, you're lost. That kind of exclusiveness is not true revival because it's not authored by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's say that that comes a little closer to home maybe than some of the others. You know, I remember Raymond Burkholder standing up in a tent meeting at charity and saying, you know, Brother Denny, I have something I have to say. You, you as a group, as a movement, have become a little bit proud and you feel like all the other Anabaptists would be better if they were all part of you. And then he would have repented of that. That he would have acknowledged and accepted as a rebuke. But you know, we have to be careful because in our flesh, in our pride, those attitudes still want to rise up. And obviously we've made enough mistakes in the last 20 years that we should be able to see that that really wasn't ever true that we had the only right answer. The other thing I find out ab about revivals, and, and am I denying that there was a revival movement? There certainly was. In 1982, when charity began, I wasn't there. But a few families, bit discouraged with the surroundings, came together and started praying and seeking, and two men put their heads together, Denny and Mose, and they began seeking and praying. And yes, there was a revival movement. I came onto the thing in 1990, 
through an old Order River Brethren man who said to me, Rick, you got to come see these people. He said, they're Dunkards, they're, they're uh, Mennonites, they're Amish. And she said, but they have life and do they get happy? <laughs> that was his description of the movement back then. So we, we got involved a bit just about once a year. I was a busy young pastor with two churches and had uh, cows to milk and worked away and had lots to do, so I just didn't get it all done. About once a year, I'd get down to visit. Sure enough, the way he described them, that's how it was. There was something that was alive. There was something that was um, joy overflowing. Was there some of this other stuff emotionally? Maybe there was. There, there may have been. But I'll never forget... It's easy for me to remember the first time I was there. It was in February of 1990. I came home and told my wife, who was expecting with our fifth child, I said, you know what, if this is a boy, we're naming him Mose. And uh, so when I see my son Mose, I can always date my time of when I <laughs> got down to charity to visit. What is real revival? What does true revival look like? Well, I think we have to look at the Bible to get answers to those questions. And I would say that Jesus had spent three and a half years on this earth approximately teaching mainly 12 men. There were others, 70 and 120 and various groups, congregations that followed him. But he had some real interest in 12 men. And in three and a half years, he hadn't really completed the task of making them into disciples. But he had done a, a very, very good job of laying the foundation. And those men needed something yet that they did not have, and that was an awakening, a revival. Now, we know that there was that transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You know, the one ended at the cross and the other begins at Pentecost, however you want to say it. Um, there, that was all part of the experience and needed to be there. But <clears throat> some of the very last things that Jesus had to say to his 12, I think, are important for us to understand what real revival, true revival looks like. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 16. I'm actually going to go to all four of the Gospels eventually and look at those last words Mark chapter 16, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 from the Amplified. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven apostles themselves as they reclined at table, and he reproved and reproached them for their unbelief, their lack of faith, and their hardness of heart, because they had refused to believe those who had seen him and looked at him attentively after he had risen from the dead. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach and publish openly the good news, the gospel to every creature of the whole human race. He who believes, who adheres to and trusts and relies on the gospel, and him whom it set forth and is baptized will be saved from the penalty of eternal death. But he who does not believe, who does not adhere to and trust and rely on the gospel, and him who is set forth will be condemned. And these attesting signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up serpents. And even if they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will get well. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and he sat down on the right hand of God. 
And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord kept working with them and confirming the message by the attesting signs and miracles that closely accompanied it. Amen. So be it. Now we're right there at Luke. Let's go back to the account in Luke. Luke chapter 24. And I'll bring, begin reading at verse 36. Now, while they were talking about this, this is the two men from, uh, that had gone to Emmaus. They come back and they give the report of having seen the Lord. Now, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself took a stand among them and said to them, Peace, freedom from all the distresses that are experienced as the result of sin be to you. So peace be to you. But they were so startled and terrified that they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you disturbed and troubled? Why do such doubts and questions arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Feel and handle. Handle me. See, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while, since they still could not believe it for sheer joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you here anything? Anything to have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which is written concerning me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he thoroughly opened up the minds of the understanding to the scriptures. And said to them, this it is writ- uh, Thus it is written, that Christ the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from among the dead. And that repentance with a view and to as with a view to and as the condition of forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I will send forth upon you what my father has promised. But remain in the city Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he conducted them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he invoked a blessing on them. And it occurred that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was taken up into heaven. And they, worshiping him, went back to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple celebrating with praises and blessings and extolling God. Amen. So be it. Now... Turn with me, since that story continues, by the same author, Luke, the writer, in Acts chapter 1, and we'll read just a little bit there. He, uh, again, reiterates a bit of what he has shared, but expands a little more. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the former account which I prepared, O Theophilus, I made a continuous report dealing with all the things which Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day when he ascended after he, through the Holy Spirit, had instructed and commanded the apostles, special messengers, whom he had chosen. To them also he showed himself alive after his passion, his suffering in the garden and on the cross by a series of many convincing demonstrations, unquestionable evidences and infallible proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and talking to them about the things of the kingdom of God. And while being in their company and eating at the table with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised, of which he said, You have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but not many days from now you shall be baptized with, placed in, introduced into the Holy Spirit. So when they were assembled, they asked him, Lord, is this the time 
when you will reestablish the kingdom and restore it to Israel. And he said to them, It is not for you to become acquainted with and know what time brings the things and events of time and their definite periods or fixed years and seasons, their critical niche in time, which the Father has appointed, fixed and reserved by his own choice and authority and personal power. Just make a note. We are not to get too hung up on eschatology. It's good to study and know it all. But if it means dividing a brotherhood over eschatological opinions, it's a mistake. That's a mistake. He even told the apostles, listen, (laughs) that's none of your business. (laughs) That's in God's hands. And when it's the right time, he'll do it. But before then, don't worry about it. But I do have something I want you to worry about, or I want you to consider, I want you to be focusing on. But you shall receive power, ability, efficiency, and might when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends, the very bounds of the earth. And when he had said this, even as they were looking at him, he was caught up, and a cloud received and carried him away out of their sight. And while they were gazing intently into heaven as he went, behold, two men dressed in white robes suddenly stood beside them, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, who was caught away and lifted up from among you into heaven, will return in just the same way in which you saw him go up into heaven. Now, let's go to John's. John's is interesting. John is the most recent of the Gospels in the sense that he had the ability to read all the others. So John's is unique because he could look at all the others and think of some things that stood out to him that the others did not record. So his recording is often a bit different. And here he doesn't carry this message of going to all the world uh, per se. But the message of being a witness is definitely there. So we'd like to look at this. John chapter 21, verse 18. I assure you most solemnly, I tell you, when you were young, you girded yourself, put your own belt on girdle, and you walked about wherever you pleased to go. But when you grow old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will put a girdle around you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. But Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following the one who also had leaned back on his breast at supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to stay, survive, and live till I come, what is that to you? What concern is it of yours? You follow me. So word went out among the brethren that this disciple was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if I want him to stay, survive, live till I come, what is that to you? It is this same disciple who, bearing witness of these things and who has recorded, written them, And we well know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. If they should be all recorded one by one in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain, have room for the books that would be written. Okay, let's go finally to Matthew chapter 28. And there we'll park. Matthew chapter 28. Isn't the word of God good? I know I've preached from this text before here, but it's not the same message. (laughs) 
The word is living. It's a live word. <clears throat> Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed and made appointment with them. And when they saw him, they fell down and worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus approached and, breaking the silence, said to them, All authority, all power of rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, perpetually, uniformly, and on every occasion. Did you catch that little note that comes out in the Greek? In the Amplified, that's in parentheses. Perpetually, uniformly, and on every occasion, to the very close and consummation of the age. Amen. So let it be. Okay, so what does real revival look like? It starts with confidence in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. You know, sometimes we can get so involved in Christian, Christianity that we forget what the heart of it is about. It's about one who has risen from the dead. Jesus and putting my confidence in him. God chose to place our sin load on Him. If you didn't think you had a sin load, you're not converted. <laughs> In Haiti, we had a, a little uh, baptism. Well, probably a big baptism, about a dozen people. But um, we're in the middle of baptizing. Denny was there. We're in the middle of baptizing. I'm down in the water to my waist. And here comes a whole group, a visiting church. And they heard we're having a baptism, so they wanted to have some candidates baptized too. And I said to Denny, I said, now what? You know, it was before church service. We're trying to quick get the baptism done, go up and have church service. Well, in Haitian fashion, time isn't really that important. So um, we will just, uh, we're going to do what we have to do. I said, well, I said, I don't feel comfortable baptizing these people without sitting and talking with each one of them. Now there's about half a dozen. So there was a deacon that led them there, and that's the reason they didn't baptize. They believe an elder needs to baptize, so they didn't want to do it themselves. Anyhow, they brought these, these people, different ages. Most of them were pretty clear in their testimony, but it was deacon's daughter, beautiful girl, 16 years old, but very naive. So I said to her, have you repented of your sin? And she looks at me with the sweetest clear eyes and says, Oh, Pastor Bob, jump for pishy. Pastor, I never sinned. I said to the deacon, you need to take this girl home. She's not ready to be baptized. He was infuriated. That's my daughter. What do you mean she's not ready to be baptized? And I'm beginning to think about, um, wait a minute, where's this guy at? <laughs> yeah. If you don't recognize that you had a load of sin. Yeah, right. Uh, if you don't recognize that you have a load of sin and that sin was put on Jesus, you're not converted yet. <laughs> That's the bottom line. We need to know, we need to recognize that somebody took our sin upon themselves. It wasn't us. We have no way that we could do it. So God chose to place that Load of sin on Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, suffered, bled, and died for me. Can I say that? God in the flesh? Yes. God the Son in the flesh. 
He existed all the way back at creation and before. He existed eternally as with the Father. And so that one accepted this role of suffering, bleeding, and dying for me. He rose that I might be justified. Now, we, we say that sometimes and we sing it sometimes, but what does that mean? Well, you know, God is just. God is righteous. His judgments are consistent, unlike earthly people when we judge things. We don't always do it consistently, but God is always consistent. So if my sins killed Jesus Christ, it would be just for him to seek revenge on me for that death. Jesus was raised from the dead for my justification so that I can be set free from the responsibility of killing the Son of God. And so... It has been said already, you know, the Jews are responsible for killing Jesus. But the Romans were responsible for killing Jesus. So the Jews and the Gentiles were responsible for killing Jesus. Are, are we part of another group somehow? I think we all are responsible, and we have to own that responsibility. That's part of revival, is being reminded and renewing the fact that I am responsible. He rose that I might be justified, not held guilty of his death, he will come again for each of his disciples that have maintained this confidence steadfast unto the end. We get to bantering sometimes about terminologies. I appreciate uh, the River Brethren terminology. When they talk about someone getting converted, they'll say they made a beginning. What does that mean? Well, that means we don't believe in unconditional eternal security, so we have made a beginning. You have to start somewhere. We've made a beginning. We're going to start walking with God. I found peace with God. I found forgiveness for my sins. There's lots of ways we can, can try to sum up what the new birth is, but there's definitely more than one way of describing it, isn't there? And so it's important for us to have that beginning. <clears throat> but then we need to continue. It is evident that we study the scriptures. I remember reading a book. Let's see, what was it called? There was a, a shank that put out a book some years ago talking about uh, the whole subject of unconditional and security and um, the doctrine of perseverance, the saints needing to persevere in the faith. And he had a man from the um, Dallas Seminary, was the dean of the Dallas Seminary, which is very Calvinistic, um, do his foreword, and that man in his foreword acknowledged that there are 72 verses that he would know of in the New Testament that would give you the idea that faith needs to be persevered in. Wow, that was a pretty big thing for someone in his position to say. But the reality is, if we just study one book, just the book of Hebrews, it keeps coming out again and again and again and again and again. If we continue in the faith... And so that faith needs to be continued in. That relationship, that confidence, that um, commitment needs to be continued in until the end. The next thing I notice is that there was new comprehension of the inspired word. So the disciples who experienced revival had confidence in Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus. But it was more than just that. There was a new comprehension of the inspired word. You know what? <clears throat> Think about this one. 
Did Jesus, as the living word, ever feel compelled to correct the written word? How old was the written word by the time Jesus came on the earth? How long had it been oral before it was written? How many chances would have there been for human error in that word? Well, in, in just a human sense, we know that that happens. We know that happens. We can play that child's game, you know, whisper down the alley, and uh, the brother Earl could whisper to Stephen, and Stephen could whisper. And until it got around here, we'd have a different story, wouldn't we? But that is not what happened with the Word of God. At least if it did happen with the Word of God, Jesus didn't feel like he needed to correct that problem. My suspicion is, though, he knew that that did not happen because he also made a statement, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. I will supernaturally be guardian over my word. There is something different about the Bible than the Quran. The Quran was written by one man, and it conflicts itself pretty badly from one end to the other. One man. But now we're talking about over 30 authors over 1,800 years and over a space of distance and culture that was hundreds and hundreds of miles wide. How? Only God. And so Jesus never felt like he needed to correct it. You know, the disciples, they didn't have a whole bunch of translations. Yes, they could have preached in Hebrew, maybe they did, but most likely they didn't. Most likely they were out and they were visiting, they were preaching in Greek. They, the language itself was not that critical to them. The message was what was critical. So the Septuagint was a translation. It was a translation done over North Africa, of all places. But it was done, and it was done in the best of their abilities at the time for a particular purpose. And that was not necessarily a good purpose. The purpose was to try to enhance and promote Greek culture to the Jewish people. So even though that was the, the status behind that translation, disciples used it. And they preached Christ from just the Old Testament. So yes, the letters began to float around from the apostles, and eventually we had a collection that we called the New Testament, but the apostles didn't really have that collection. They couldn't do like we can and open up the Bible to the New Testament and start preaching. They didn't have it. They didn't have it. But they could preach Christ from all the fulfilled prophecies of the Scripture. You know, Jesus didn't correct the written word, and I'm, I am impressed with that in the sense of talking about divinely inspired. Jesus' corrections were focused on wrong interpretations and the added traditions of men. And those traditions weren't all bad. Actually, some of them were pretty good, you know. You need to wash your hands before you eat. Is that a bad tradition or is that a good one? It's probably not a bad one. It's a good one. But when I make it something spiritual... And anyone that doesn't do it is unspiritual. Now it's a bad tradition. It becomes a bad tradition. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies in his lifetime and even in his death and his resurrection. <clears throat> and then I'd like to see that God's word in light of King Jesus' new covenant. You know, it's interesting that Jesus stayed 40 days after he died. Why? Why? Was it just to prove that he had lived? That he had risen from the dead? Well, we read in Acts that what he did in those 40 days was important. 
he continued to teach his now, how do you want to say it, alert disciples. Whoa, he kept telling us this and we didn't get it. He kept saying he's going to die and we didn't want to hear that. So we didn't accept it. And he told us that he's going to rise on the third day. And when it happened, we didn't believe it. But now he's got our attention. Here he is before us, the resurrected Jesus. We could thrust our fingers into his hand if we want to. We could run our hand up his side if we want to. And yet he stands here before us and he eats a fish right in front of us. He's not a spirit. He's the real thing. And now that he has their attention, he spends 40 days teaching them the truths of the kingdom. Probably that he already taught them before. But now it drives it home. And these men go forth preaching the very same scriptures that are read in every synagogue. But preaching it with new life and preaching the new covenant and not the old. Making a clear distinction, a clear separation in the word of truth. That was revival. That was revival. Anybody can pick up a Bible and start reading it. Anybody can. Anybody can memorize it. The devil did. Huh? That's right. The devil memorized the Bible. He'll quote it to you. All twisted and out of place. Even as he did to Christ. So Jesus explains this great authority transfer Back there in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus approached, breaking the silence, said to them, All authority, all power rule in heaven and earth has been given to me. Revival is when I can embrace the fact that this same Jesus is now the dominion of the entire world, the entire universe, and me too. Me too. Before he was not, he was not my king. Today he is. He has dominion. It was given to him over life and death. He stands in the revelation saying, I hold the keys to life and death. He has dominion over the grave. He has dominion over eternity. He has dominion over judgment. He has dominion over Satan and his demons. Do you believe that? You know what? After seeing people who were demon-possessed set free, and they were set free, for only one reason. Because in the name of Jesus, those demons were told to get out, and they got out. In the name of Muhammad, they'd have laughed. In the name of Buddha, they would have been hilarious. You've got to be kidding. Who do you think you are telling us what to do? But in the name of Jesus, they tremble. They must go. Jesus Dominion, all power, all authority, it's all given to him over Satan, over his demons, and over fear. Thank you for reading that scripture in 1 John. That's beautiful. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear of Satan. Fear of the future. Fear of the virus! Perfect love casts it out. One of the blessings I had in my rough experience with the virus this year, <clears throat> I uh, generally am a healthy person. I'm rarely sick. And of course, I work, work in the health industry and make natural medicines out of herbs. I'm a promoter of the organic lifestyle. So all of that said, it's a little humiliating when you get sick. 
especially when you get seriously sick. So I was doing the best to nurse myself along when I got COVID-19, it hit me in the gut, diarrhea I couldn't control, which with my diet I usually easy, no problem, can control those kind of things. Um, a little bit of herbal help, but nope, I couldn't do anything with it. Eight days, it had me so weak I could barely get out of my bed to get to the bathroom, which is not a good situation when you have the diarrhea. So, finally, my oxygen in my blood dropped down in the 80s, which I didn't know, but my daughter, Kirsha, was faithfully checking my blood oxygen levels, and my mind was not working well. I had taken some high-dose vitamin C treatments, and was on a bu bunch of pretty heavy herbal treatment trying to work with this. But there are times, and what happened was that laying in bed like that, pneumonia set in to my lungs, and uh, there was no kicking the pneumonia. The pneumonia was kicking me. So I was about at the end of myself and was not enough oxygen for my brain to even realize it. When an ambulance was in my driveway, I looked at that thing and I thought, who are they for? What's the, what's the ambulance for? Well, there was two of them. There was one for me and one for my wife. We were both in bad shape. So, get there. They, of course, diagnose me positive and send me over to Danville to the intensive care unit they have set up just for dealing with this virus. Now, um, I'm in and out. I'm in and out. I remember a lot of stuff, but I don't remember everything. But I remember thinking, you know what, God, um, it would be kind of pleasant to just leave. But God, I have a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't finish that's here. You think about some of the dumbest things you think about when you're about at death. I'm thinking about unfinished stuff. I have a mortgage. I'm halfway between getting a lower interest rate. and My wife doesn't know about that stuff. And she can't handle that. And what do I do, God? And Anyway, the peace that I enjoyed while in that state was, you know what? <laughs> if, I, if it's your purpose for me to go now, you'll figure the rest out for her. You'll help her figure the rest out. So apparently I had enough of unfinished work for him and his kingdom that he chose to keep me around a little longer. But mind you, it'll only be a little longer. Life is short at best. It's short at best. My mother died when she was 52. I'm 58. I've outlived her six years already. So you could say I'm on borrowed time. I always have been, actually. Time is a gift. Use it. Use it wisely. <clears throat> Jesus has conquered fear. I am set down at the right hand of God the Father until all my enemies are my footstool. Think about that picture. Yes, death, Satan, the grave have all been conquered, but they are like a foe who is still kicking. Still kicking. And the day will come where that kick will end. All kicks will end. We had a butcher's training seminar, and we had some big mule-footed sows to kill. And uh, they shot one of those things, and she, she took about 45 minutes until they could skin her back leg because she just kept kicking. 
reminded me of the devil. He just keeps kicking. But you know what? He knows he's licked. He knows it. Jesus says, I am the king of all those who love me, having been born again by the Holy Spirit, and they long to know and do my will. Is that who we are? If that's not who we are, then revival is imperative. It's imperative. Disciple-making, the revealed will of Christ. How many times have we read in this, go into all the world? What am I going out in the, all the world for? Is it sightseeing? Well, there's some interesting sights to see. I'll tell you that right now. But that's not what it's for. It's for making disciples. And it's so easy for me to get distracted. I loved making disciples in Haiti, but I also loved the wild amaryllis that were blooming. You know, it's easy for me to get distracted and forget what am I here for. And you know, it's easy for us right here in comfortable Pennsylvania to get distracted. It's easy. You know, several things stand out to me in this disciple-making process, and that is teaching preceded baptism. The idea somehow that I'm going to flip through a book and show somebody the gospel message and then say, now let's go get in the water and get baptized. I don't see that. I don't find that there. Now, yeah, there were some unique things happened. Pentecost, there were 3,000 people got baptized. But take note, these were the most devout Jews from all over the world had traveled to one place to keep a holy feast. These were not people that did not know God or know about God, but these are people who had not been introduced to his Messiah and now were. So they didn't take so much training. But when you're talking about taking someone off the street who knows nothing about God and you run them into the baptismal process, you're making a big mistake. You're making a big mistake. They are not Jewish proselytes. They need a little bit of teaching, a little bit of understanding what that commitment is all about. It's not compatibility, right, brother? It's commitment that they need to grasp in baptism. So teaching is for all nations. You know, I want to commend you as a congregation here. The uttermost parts, you have gone to Tanzania and are operating a mission there. I commend you for that. The Samaria, I know you get on the bus and go to New York City sometimes. That's maybe your Samaria. Judea, I know you have work in Lebanon City, and some of you have worked in Lebanon City for many years. Well, what about Jerusalem? How much effort have we put into Shaferstown? I see a whole new neighborhood popped up over here. Do you know any of them? Do any of them know you? I ask our congregation at Sunbury, why is it easier for us to go overseas to conduct missions than it is right here? Do you think there are any heathen living in those homes? Uh, I've not been there. I don't know the people. I'm going to tell you right now there's heathen living in those homes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. There are heathen who have never heard one stitch of the gospel message yet. We met some young people in Pottsville. They, they were totally blank slate. They had no clue. Never heard any of it. You don't have to go to Africa to find that. So why is it easier? And I think if we want to be honest, it's easier because we don't have the cultural and influence issues to deal with. If revival broke out here in Schaeferstown, amongst Oasis Christian Fellowship, like it did when we were in Haiti, 
And suddenly you had 300 people thrust into your midst that didn't know the right hand from their left concerning Christianity. What would you do with them? What would you do with them? What if it was only one family? But think about 300 of them. I'm not sure that I had the answer because I don't know that I always did it right or knew what to do with them either. I know having church was a little more like tending kindergarten sometimes than it was um, uh, a true depth of Christian service. But nevertheless, think about these things. What are you doing in your Jerusalem? What about Bethel? What about Lydditz? Some of you come from different places there that there are unsaved, unchurched people. What are we doing for them? Baptizing is helping others understand the need to be committed to Jesus and His kingdom now. Not just for eternity, but for now. Disciple-making is incomplete if we fail to teach obedience to what the Lord Jesus taught us in His Word concerning His kingdom now. So, how many individuals have you fully discipled in teaching the all things of Christ? I want you to think about that. (coughs) When I was in Haiti, I was full-time as a missionary in Haiti for two and a half years. And I feel like I only partially completed discipling one man. And I felt pretty bad about that, actually, when I left and I contemplated it. Yes, I did a lot of preaching. I was preaching probably five or six times a week. A lot of teaching. A lot of legwork. A lot of home visits. But as far as making disciples, I feel that I only partially completed one. So that's not to my boast at all. The question is simply this. I've spent all that time just trying to teach the all things of Christ to that one individual. How many individuals have you fully discipled? If we barely get the task of teaching the all things that Jesus taught, how much time should we spend on teaching housekeeping rules? Housekeeping rules? Oh, yes. Every house has housekeeping rules. Thou shalt not run through mom's kitchen with your muddy shoes on. Do you have a rule like that at your house? If you don't, I highly suggest it. It's a very good rule. Okay? And husbands, I highly suggest you enforce it, and your wife will smile and say amen, right? Can you go to the Scripture and find that rule somewhere? You won't find it there. Does that mean it's not good to have it? doesn't mean that at all. It just means that it's a housekeeping rule. You know what? Churches have some housekeeping rules, too. But I'd say keep that list of housekeeping rules short and don't spend lots of time taking a new convert to your housekeeping rules because there's some all things of Christ they need to learn first. What about our cultural practices? You know what? When it comes to culture, ich bin Schwitzer. I'm a Swiss. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that. And I've been here with my family for 11 generations. We're still Swiss. But, do we get hung up on that? Do we become proud of that? Do we think that anyone who's not Swiss is a little less than what they should be? Is that a problem? It would be a problem because that's not the kingdom of God. 
I can't, matter of fact, I don't find that the Swiss were at Pentecost. So we can't have Johnny come lately's. Um, and so I think we have to be careful about those sort of things, cultural practices. Did Jesus wear suspenders? I don't think he did, probably. But does he have a problem if I do? I don't think he does. I think the end goal is to hold our pants up, and if we do that with a belt or do it with suspenders, whatever we do to get the job done, we need to get it done, right? Let's not get hung up on some of our cultural things that make us a bit unique. And let's know. Someone comes in here that's a stranger, they're right away. I heard that terrorized. Uh, I forget who said that, but I thought that was kind of interesting terminology. Anyway, um, there is something to that. So let's say that you evangelized a family over here, and the first time that they come to visit the church, they're going to walk in the back door. <gasps> what is this? Some kind of cult? Well, the women are all over here, and the men are all over here. What's that supposed to mean? Do you know how to explain that? Well, it'd be good for you to learn. Brother Earl and I, you know, we were charged back in about 2004 to write a booklet. And we never got our job done. We were going to write a booklet called, Why Do We Do That? Just a little booklet talking about some of our cultural uniqueness. And there's good reasons for them. But it's not something that we want to put in our confession of faith because it has nothing to do with our confession of faith. And I can't go to the Bible necessarily and say, this is why we do this. Okay, but to explain cultural things. Questions that come to mind, you know, the frequently asked question page. When a new person comes, why do all these women wear flowered dresses? Well, first off, they don't, do they? <laughs> but that's perception. It's perception. Why do your men all grow beards? Well, obviously, we don't. But it's perception, right? Do we have an explanation for someone who's just, okay, I'm trying to figure out what you people are all about. And we need to be patient with those cultural practices and making them understand who we are and why, why we do what we do. I remember a brother in Harmony. So one time he stood in the pulpit, he said, like, every one of you to turn in your Bibles to First Opinions chapter 3. I like to go for second opinions, but... Yeah, right. <laughs> you won't find the book of first opinions in the Bible, so we have to leave the opinions out when it comes to disciple-making. And you know why? And it's because Jesus is going to expect an account of our work here. We must give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for believers. It's not a matter of us getting into heaven or not. It's a matter of us giving an account to the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us and ask us to do something. What did he ask us to do? He asked us to go into all the world and make disciples. So how did we go about that is important because we have to give an account for that. That is a commitment that we are called to. Jesus promised to be with us, to help us do his will, even on to the end. So there's two kinds of churches. And this isn't a perfect allegory, but it's going to get the idea across, I believe. There's two kinds of churches. There's one that resembles a hospital, and there's one that resembles a rest home. In a hospital, there's babies being born. There's broken bones being mended. There's surgeries being done. 
There, there are all kinds of critical things that are happening all the time, every day. There's a fair amount of risk in a hospital, both for the people laying in the bed and the people who are standing over them. There's a fair amount of risk in a hospital, but that is life-giving. The rest home, on the other hand, is very calm. It's comfortable. We want it to be, because you're basically gone there to just sit and wait out life until you die. There's no babies born in a rest home normally. If it is, it was a pretty big accident. Do you get the allegory? Do we want our church to be a hospital or a rest home? Is it just a place for us and our family to just live quietly and go on till we die? Or are we looking at fulfilling the calling that is real revival to go into all the world and make disciples? Let's kneel together in prayer. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we do thank you, we praise you, we thank you for your long-suffering, your patience with us as a people. Father, you see everything perfectly clear. We see as through a glass darkly, and there are times that we just, we, we don't get it right. And we want to acknowledge that before you, God, and we pray that you would help us to get it right. Help us to be true representatives of Jesus Christ on this earth that we might be a light in this dark age that we live in. And it seems to be getting darker, but that's okay because you promised to be with us. And so we choose to not fear the future. We choose to trust you and put our whole heart into serving and honoring and loving you. Teach us day by day. Thank you for the brethren that have shared here this morning. And thank you for your spirit, God that wants to continue to work a work in each one of our lives. We bless you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.